Peter's response is not entirely rational. Like he immediately calls out his own sinfulness and has a moment of repentance because they pulled a bunch of fish into the boat. Hello, this is the Adventure Through the Bible podcast. My name is Matt. Joining me today are your friends and mine, Amy. Good morning. And Tracy. Good morning. And even though Kentucky is trying to kill her, we have Karen. (laughs) Yeah, I'm a little raspy. I'm about (laughs) to start my second career as a jazz singer. Everything's fine. (laughs) Well, if you just... Fine. I'm fine. (laughs) If you just give up smoking... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I, I, my warranty is officially expired. I've reached the age where if I go outside and breathe, I can get an, a weird allergy attack that no one can pinpoint. <laughs> fun. So much fun. Yes, we hurt ourselves Bye. doing nothing and and we can't breathe anymore. <laughs> <laughs> oh, all that, all that fun stuff, all that fun stuff. Oh, well, our topic today is going to be some of the ministry of Jesus, and the the gospels kind of bounce all over the place with this, and so we're going to do our best to kind of navigate things in the order they happen. And some of this is my trying to gleaning things or happening the way they did. And so chances are we'll get some of it out of order. I don't know how much that really matters because I think it's more important that we understand that these things did happen, uh, maybe more than when they happened. Because as we're reading the Gospels, we see that at least the Synoptic Gospels, even sometimes they put things in different order from one another. Uh, and I think that's probably just a matter of, you know, we're writing this down as we're remembering it or as uh, we're recalling what we've been told because, um, oh, I'm trying to think. I mean, I think not even the synoptic gospels were all necessarily eyewitness accounts. I know Luke is basically, he's kind of recounting what Peter told him, right? And because he was a, he was an more of a disciple of Peter than of Jesus directly. But I do believe that we know, we think that Mark's gospel yeah, was it, probably it first. Like he talked to a lot of people. Yeah. So he's, yeah, he was, I think of Luke as a research, a general researcher, not a one person. Yeah. He's kind of taking, taking interviews and, and compiling things. Um, Matthew, I suppose he's probably telling things from his perspective as he's recalling them. And, uh, you know, it's probably some of this as you're, you know, sometimes you're telling a story and then all of a sudden you go, oh, yeah, and that reminds me of this that happened before. And so I think that happens sometimes, too. For the most part, they're they're fairly, oh, I guess we could say they're fairly cohesive in, in the order things happen, but um, not not 100 percent. But like I said, I don't know that that the order matters so much as just the understanding of what happened. So as we are beginning, then we've seen things happen in Jesus's life where we saw his baptism with his baptism. We saw him pick up a couple of disciples from John the Baptist. And in that he was he was introduced to a couple of guys that we're going to get reintroduced to today. Uh, We have seen um, I don't know, we've seen several things going on with Jesus, but we haven't really seen him 
begin what I guess what we would think of as a ministry. He's kind of been around. Uh, people are aware of him. Um, and he's made an impact, but perhaps not on a huge scale yet. And so as we, we, we get into these Gospels, and I kind of was using the Gospel of Mark as sort of a backbone for the order that things happen, because I think that's a little bit of how the other two did it as well. They, they sort of used his Gospel and then expanded on it. And that's, so that's sort of where I'm beginning my, my chronology that I'm laying out here with this. But as we begin today, we find that John the Baptist has been put in prison. Which is, it's interesting that we get told this without really any details of why specifically he's put been put in prison. I thought we knew that it was uh, because um, Herod had taken his brother's wife. And he yeah. specifically didn't like the preaching of John because he felt condemned by it. Right. And I, I mean, are my two... Is that later in the story? Well, I thought that was the reason he was put in prison. You know, if it is, it's. I don't think it's told. We're told here because. Um, well, yeah, we're not told in Matthew. Yeah. But but uh, we do know that he has he is in prison, and and I do know that we we do hear later that about about John um, talking about that. So I guess it is because of his uh, speaking out against Herod's actions that he got thrown into prison. So I don't know, kind of an illegitimate reason, if you ask me, uh, just because um, <laughs> just because a politician doesn't like what you're saying about him. But but John the Baptist is in prison. Oh, oh that never happens. You're, oh, you're I get you. a politician and, and you find yourself <laughs> on the wrong side of the bars. So with John the Baptist in prison, then um, we find that Jesus, he leaves Nazareth and decides to go to Galilee. And Luke tells us this, that he does this in the power of the Spirit. And that's kind of interesting that uh, Jesus is being led by the Spirit. You know, when we think of Jesus, at least as Christians, we tend to recognize that Jesus is God. He is omnipotent in his own right. He is um, uh, omniscient in his own right. Uh, yet he, he defers to the other two parts of the Trinity in the way he, the way he works while he's, while he was here on earth, walking among people. And so the, the idea that he's deferring to the spirit is sort of an interesting thought to me of where he is, uh, how he's being led, how he is being, um, or how he's conducting himself. Yeah, Matt, I think um, that's a good point because, or yeah, because I feel like, one of the things he's doing while he's here, you know, his prime directive is to save mankind and be the ultimate sacrifice. But he also is showing us the way and the way is to rely on God's spirit, to turn to the spirit and ask for guidance. So mm -hmm. he's doing that so that we can see what it looks like. Now, in his leaving there, Matthew points out and, and we'll find that Matthew, I think. He quotes he quotes a lot of scripture and prophecies uh, to to flesh out his gospel and showing how Jesus was uh, fulfilling those prophecies. And so Matthew 
he quotes Isaiah 9 as Jesus is leaving Nazareth to go to Galilee because he specifically is headed to Capernaum. I don't know exactly how to pronounce that, Capernaum. And it says in the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali. And so when Matthew was quoting in, uh, let's see, this would be Matthew 4, starting in verse 15. He says, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And upon those who sat in the region and shadow of death, light has dawned. So something as simple as Jesus deciding to relocate, Matthew was pointing out that this is a this is a fulfillment of prophecy uh, from long, long before with Isaiah. And Jesus starts to he's just beginning to preach a message. And then in some ways, it's a continuation of what John already was preaching. But he's preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Yeah, that that verse is really interesting to me because, you know, we are living in a time after Luther and after people have, um, you know, given up on their own works. And and, you know, we very much always want to emphasize grace. And and we definitely believe that we are saved by the gracious act of Christ. Um, But look, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So. In no way does he want us to cling to sin. Um, He is our gracious redeemer, but he also wants us to let go of that deadly thing. Yeah, and he's 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 preaching about repenting. He is repenting about the kingdom of heaven um, and uh, fulfillment of time. Well, Luke talks about this, too. So um, Mm -hmm. our chapters in Luke first spends a little bit more time about. Like what happened in, in Nazareth that he left. Yeah. So like in, in Matthew, it just says, leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, right? Mm-hmm. And then in Luke, it actually goes into what happened. He was rejected at Nazareth and they were ready to kill him. And then he, he leaves and he goes goes down to Capernaum and, and he, um, he gives this example of of him casting out an impure spirit where the impure spirit cries out at the top of his voice through the man, go away. What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? If you come to destroy us, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Okay, so think about what just happened in Nazareth. Jesus stood up and he read from Isaiah, you know, mm-hmm. um, what, what was the section? The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, right? He's announcing the start of his ministry. Like, how much more blatant does it get? He says to the crowd, he rolls the scroll back up, and he says, today this has been fulfilled in your ears, in your hearing, right? Mm-hmm. And and he gets rejected. They're like, oh, isn't this Joseph's son? And let's, you know, take him outside and kill him and whatever. So he leaves, and he goes. he goes to Capernaum, And this time, instead of announcing who he is, an impure spirit tries to announce who he is, and he shushes the spirit. I thought that was interesting. Yeah, that is interesting. Um, Trying to remember exactly, like I said, trying to remember where exactly these things happen, but we can talk about these things. However, because because that is interesting how, and I've always I wonder why because we see this a few times in Jesus's ministry where somebody comes along and starts. Proclaiming who Jesus is, 
but Jesus doesn't seem to like the source, and so he he doesn't want them to speak on him in in that way about him. Yeah. Uh, so in earlier in Luke, when he's at Nazareth, so he reads that little bit, and then he says, "Today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing." Right. So he's announcing himself, mm-hmm. and everybody gets mad. Isn't this Joseph's son? And Jesus, in his his response to them, is interesting. Jesus said to them, so this is in Luke 4, starting in 23. Jesus said to them, surely you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. And you will tell me, do here in your hometown what you have heard you did in Capernaum. So apparently he's already been in Capernaum, right? Mm -hmm. Truly, I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel during Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha, the prophet, and yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian, right? So he's basically saying, he's saying to them in a few sentences by using local examples from their sort of ethnic experience, the grant, what is happening in the grand scope of the gospel. The gospel was given to this select group to stand up and be an example. They failed in their duty. And so now the gospel is going to go to everyone. And God's children will be the people who believe. They will be grafted in to the seed of Abraham, right? And that's all of us. That's all of us who were, you know, not born Hebrew, not born into that chosen bloodline. And that is the entirety of Christ's ministry. And I thought that was a cool couple of local examples that he brought up and said, you know, this is what's happened in your history and you haven't learned from it. Here you are ready to do it again. I'm going to go now. I'm going to go back to Capernaum. And sure enough, the first thing that happens there is this this unclean spirit recognizes him for who he is and says, I know who you are. You know, I think this just lays it down once again. And while I'm going through here, I keep writing on the side of my notes, it's a blueprint. It's a blueprint, once again, to what's going on. Mm -hmm. What he's laying down, they're not getting. Yeah. Yeah, and why do we think they're not, he's not getting it? I mean, in in one hand, like you said a couple times, Karen, you know, this is Joseph's son. So who is, you know, who is this kid? Or I, I, I say kid, I mean, at this point, he's in his... He's well into adulthood. I mean, he's, he's 30. 30, he's 30, right? Now. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I guess he's a kid to us. <laughs> but um, he's he, he's 30. He's they know whose kid he is. He doesn't seem in, in that in that story in Luke four that you we were just talking about. He doesn't seem to want to perform for them because they're like, you know, show us some signs. And he's and he's not doing it. And they're 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 not cool. They're not cool with it. I don't know. It's, I think there's a lot of factors involved here of why they're rejecting him. Part of it seems like, you know, they're perceiving some blasphemy. Part of it seems to be because uh, he won't prove himself in the way they want to see it. And probably parts of it is he's not what they expected. You know, I think it's, you know, he goes on to say it. It's it's hard to be accepted by where you grew up. Because everybody knows you. Mm-hmm. And then now now he's taking a big leap and getting on his true mission. And people are like, 
okay, I remember you and you were in diapers. What's different? You know, and I think that's hard winning them over when they have that past on you. And now he's starting, you know, now's my time. I need to start my father's business. And they don't they don't see that. They only see him for that person that was growing up with them side by side. Mm-hmm. So a little while later in his ministry, <clears throat> I'm just going to pop ahead to Matthew 13 here real quick. The very end of Matthew 13, he he circles back around to Nazareth and and the response is the same. So I'll just bre- read this brief section. So I'm going to start in verse 54. So coming to his hometown, he began teaching the people in their synagogue and they were amazed. Where did this man get this wisdom and this miraculous powers? They asked, isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary? And aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? Aren't all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor, except in his own town and in his own home. And he did not do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. Mm -hmm. Right? So there's a time and a place for the messenger of change to be a stranger. Because you're... What is familiar? So a messenger of change needs to, I think that there are times when think when we look at something or someone that we're comfortable with, we can't hear change from them well. Like you're mm-hmm. part of what's familiar. Stop telling me things are different now, mm. right? So th- there's a reason that churches rotate ministers over the years because Individual growth and congregational growth require intermittent change. If you, if you have nothing but the same point of view all the time, you basically end up talking in a circle, right? And there's a reason when kids when kids are being raised that parents, if they're smart, will include other adult mentors in their child's life, right? There's a mm-hmm. time and a place. Growth, some of the biggest moments of growth often come from unknown situations like here's someone new talking about something new and so for example john the baptist he had his role it was a chapter he was there to introduce the idea right he was the local renegade that showed up and shouted about repentance and carried on and ate bugs and honey and did weird things and lived in the wilderness and looked like a crazy person and drew crowds regardless his moment passed. Mm-hmm. He knew when his moment passed. Everyone knew when his moment, well, not everyone. John and Jesus both knew when his moment passed. Right. Now it's Jesus's turn to step in and have his moment and do his ministry. And that same person, like Jesus couldn't have been his own forerunner. Right. You can't do it because you create familiarity and then you can't shift the message. I mean, this is basic, like this is how you communicate with humans. And so when it comes to, in a small scope, the people of Nazareth, in a larger scope, the people of Israel, in a worldwide scope, think of the difference of intensity of love and devotion from a lifelong Christian who's been steeped in theology to their eyeballs since they were a wean, right, versus somebody who comes into the church, say they come from being an atheist 
to believing in Christ. They're converted in their late 20s or early 30s or even their 40s. And all of a sudden, oh my gosh, their whole life changes and they are on fire, right? I just think there's a lot of value to that. Mm -hmm. Everybody's got their chapter. Everybody's got their place. And and each person's story carries a different kind of weight. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So I think you see this blueprint on the smaller scope because if you look at the followers of John the Baptist, they had a hard time. Yeah. You know they were saying, okay, hold on. Now there's like a you know is Jesus the rival? Should we be following him or should we still be following you? And John had to tell him, listen, my time is over. I yep. was just paving the way. He's yep. here now. We all need to get on that, you know, bandwagon might not be the best word to use, but we need to to switch now because our time and what we were planning to do is already here. Our message is over. Mm-hmm. And and his his followers had a hard time with that because they looked at it as a rival. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is interesting. We I, I think we in a human capacity, we have a tendency to to not notice when it's time for us to step aside and let somebody else take over. We like to hold on to things and be, you know, influential and, or at least be in the know of what's going on. And, uh, you know, I wonder if that's what, like in a way, what Karen was saying though, is, is that, you know, at that point in time, you know, we want to be on fire, but now everything has become familiar. Mm Mm-hmm. And then self, I think, is another thing that that jumps in there. It's like the message is kind of left behind or not the central focus, but self kind of creeps in and then it becomes about them. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And we see it. Well, I mean, I I, I know I've probably seen it in times in my life when I had to realize that, I, you know, I, I need to I need to step aside because I'm the I'm the old. <laughs> it's hard for me to say it, but it's true. I'm becoming the older generation or at least, you know, (laughs) working in there and and the things I like, the things that I like and the things that were um, influential to me don't they're they're not they're not to a different generation. And, you know, I suppose it's just uh, I, I have to realize that, okay, I may not like exactly how that works out, but I'm not the one that's being spoken to here and. And, and, uh, and haven't we all had our moment where the generation that was older than us was dragging their feet and wouldn't get out of the way, right? <laughs> we've got a head of steam, like we've got an idea and we've got momentum and we want to do the thing, right? And the older generation is like deeply offended. So some yeah. of this is generational. Oh, I some live of this, that. Some of this could be local <laughs> entrenchment, right? I can think of many local stories, which I'm not referring to because they're not relevant to the podcast. But, you know, but if I if we just limit this to spiritual issues, I mean, how many of us have seen that? Like, okay, let's let's here's a here's um, let's get really personal here. Like you live at home when you're a kid. And you get older and you move away from home and your parents don't see you a million hours a day anymore. And you grow and you change and you get new habits and you get new likes and you get new dislikes and you experience new things, and some of them you are really into, and you create a new groove for yourself. You basically choose who you want to be as a young adult. And then you go back home, and your family stares at you in horror, like, who is this guy? Like, <laughs> why would you make these ch-? And they they treat you. They're, they're so ready to just pat you on the head 
and treat you as if you've never changed from the toddler that they taught how to walk, right? Does that mean there's no value to having that founda those foundational relationships where that's the person who taught you how to walk? No, there's total value in it. But could we let each other grow, please? You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Mm -hmm. And I, I just, there's just, there's these different times and my father's job drug us all around the country. It just did. We moved a lot. And so one of my goals as an adult was to move less, which I have, <laughs> which I have succeeded at. I'm pleased. And yet I've moved more than other people I know because I'm more comfortable moving. Like mm -hmm. I got, I mean, we, when I was a kid, man, we moved every two to four years. We would pull up roots and go. We went wherever his job took us. And on the one hand, it would hurt to leave behind the familiar. But when I think of the times of change in my life, I can think of when I would go to a new place, I would be in a new environment, and it would feel like a new opportunity. And I would stretch and I would grow, and there was no one to hold on to my ankles and complain at my growth because they had known me back when. Mm -hmm. Right? Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Now, if you think of this spiritually, you know, and this is what we're dealing with here. Is we're talking, we're in this, in these stories, we're combining the day-to-day -day humdrum familiarity with spiritual familiarity. Jesus is not only the child that grew up in Nazareth, and he gets more respect in Capernaum, right? But he can tell stories all the way back to Elijah and Elisha, where miracles. There was a prophet of God living right there amongst the people of God, and the people of God didn't even go to him and ask. Mm-hmm. It didn't even go. There were lepers living in Israel who did not go to Elisha and ask for healing. But Naaman came from Syria because some little Hebrew captive slave told him, hey, there's a man of God. He can do what you need. Right. Like that's crazy to think about. And may yeah. we never get stuck in those ruts. Yeah. Like, like that's that's where it is. Like to me, when I read this, it's like a kind of a wake-up call like don't get complacent just because it's the thing you've known for years doesn't mean it never changes mm -hmm. grow up wake up yeah you know and i think we need to keep that on the forefront because it's just like you said you know a little while back matt you find yourself falling into that and thinking man i'm the older generation now and some of the things that they do i don't like but I think, you know, I think that's what happens is we just we don't be, we're not fluid anymore. We come set in our own um, comfort zone and we don't yep. want to get out. Yeah. Where I think, you know. We always go back to to um, raising our children and it's it's the um, it kind of always goes with me that says if you're trying to raise your child in your generation. It no longer exists. Yeah. You know, and I think and I think, too, you know, with with church, it's the same thing. There is going to be new discovery, new discoveries, new revelations, new ways of looking at things. You know, I often say, you know, my journey has been where I was born in kind of the whole revelation kind of seminar kind of aspect mm -hmm. where, you know, a few years ago, um, the blueprint came out. I was like, what? I never knew this. And it just kind of keyed me back to, you know what? There are different perspectives to look at things. We just have to remain open enough and not shut down our minds or our hearts like exactly where we've been going through our whole journey in the Bible. 
when you shut that down, you remove yourself from God. Yeah. Well, and this whole thing is kind of fascinating to me because, you know, when you read Matthew, like Matthew just says, well, Jesus left and he was fulfilling a prophecy when he did this. And if you read only that, you could probably come at this from a perspective like, okay, Jesus knew those prophecies. And so he's doing things to make himself fulfill these prophecies. But like we're talking about now, when he left Nazareth, he had to leave Nazareth. He couldn't do anything there. They wanted to kill him there. Yep. And so he literally was forced out of Nazareth. And and so this is why that prophecy is being fulfilled is because he had to go. And and that that is uh, really kind of a fascinating thing to me, you know, for Matthew to point out. Yeah, he's point, he's fulfilling prophecy. But look at this. When we look at Luke, it's because he had to do it. He had to. He couldn't he couldn't stay. So that is that is kind of interesting to me. Now we move on, and we Jesus begins to call some disciples. And I had a perception in my mind for a long time that Jesus would basically walk up to people and say, "Follow me," and they would go, "Okay." But as we might recall from a while, a couple couple episodes ago. Jesus had already been introduced to uh, Simon, who will eventually become Peter, and his brother, Andrew. Uh, Andrew had been introduced through John the Baptist. And then Andrew had gone to Simon and said, hey, look, we found the Messiah. And we find that when Jesus comes into the story we're going to talk about now, he already knew these guys. Which is which is sort of an interesting aspect to me, because uh, as one timeline I'm looking at here, it would look like it had been several months between the time when Jesus was introduced to Peter and the time that he actually called Peter. So he had been introduced to Peter back shortly after being like the day of or the day after being baptized. And now, several months later, as he has had to leave Nazareth, move into Galilee, we get a couple of different uh, versions of the story here that, you know, one kind of expands on the other. But Jesus is going by the Sea of Galilee, and he comes across uh, Peter and Andrew. So it's different, though, remember, with, um, with Matthew, Mm-hmm. Because uh, let's see, in Luke chapter five, it says, "After these things, he went forth, and he found a tax collector named Levi uh, sitting at the receipt of custom. And he said to him, Follow me.' And immediately he left all, rose up, and followed him. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, isn't isn't Matthew Matthew Levi? Yes, I think that's yeah, I, I think so. Yes, yeah. um, yes. But you know, I suspect that even by that, the I think that case maybe maybe Matthew had heard. Yeah. Go ahead, I'm sorry. No, that's exactly what I was going to say. I have a feeling that by the time he calls Matthew, Matthew had probably heard about Jesus. He'd probably been hearing of some of the things he had been preaching and maybe had even been contemplating things already. And so when when Jesus calls Matthew, it seems very sudden from our perspective, but perhaps Matthew had been listening in the wings, you know, as the outcast he was. He probably was still sort of a, a aware, at least that's my suspicion. But so in this fairly famous story, 
one of the one of the more popular stories of the Bible is Jesus is going by the Sea of Galilee and he sees he sees these two brothers. Uh, the way Luke puts it is that they are putting away their nets. They've been trying to fish and haven't been able to catch anything. They're putting away their nets. <laughs> Jesus walks up and gets into the boat and says, uh, hey, how about you uh, put out from, from land a little bit? And they do it. So a lot of these things, when you take them out of context, it seems, it seems like, oh, wow, these guys are just doing this stuff. But... They know him, and so when he says, you know, put me out there a little bit, and they do it, you can see that this is sort of a little bit of an act of probably <clears throat> friendship happening here, or at least familiarity. And so it's one of those things, again, where I sort of, I feel like I can feel laughter in Jesus's voice, mm -hmm. um, or a smile on his face, you know, because here he is getting in their boat. They are skilled fishermen, and they, you know, their, their father was a fisherman, so they know fishing, and here comes this guy, you know, this teacher, and uh, we all know, right, those teachers that think they know everything. Mm -hmm. And um, and he gets in their boat and he says, put your nets on the other side. Well, they've been fishing all night. And yeah. and it, it is a funny story because what they don't realize is that, you know, they're with the creator of the universe mm. and that he's he knows a thing or two about fish, too. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and so I just I think uh, it, I can hear laughter in Jesus voice. That's all he's yeah. just saying. Yeah, watch this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, the the first reason that Jesus hasn't put out there, though, is, is I, I, he must at this point already be be gathering a bit of a crowd. People are starting to know who he is, maybe. And so he puts out just a little bit out in the water because obviously then people can't mob him there. And that gives him the opportunity to be able to speak to the people on shore. Now, we're not told specifically here what he starts to teach them. Um, but, but he's obviously, he's obviously got an audience, but yeah. Water, so water carries sound well too. So that yeah. would be a good amplifier to speak across water to a crowd. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so he's able, he's able to preach to, or speak to the people, but then, yeah, this request that he makes of, of, of these guys, Peter and Andrew to put the net on the other side of the boat. And as if that's going to make any difference at all. You know, you you just you a, a practical perspective would say that doesn't seem like that's going to make much sense at all. But um, here again, it seems like they maybe have enough familiarity with him where they're saying, well, OK, I mean, if that's what you want me to do, I'll I'll give it a shot where I don't know that they would if Jesus had been a stranger to him. I'm over in Luke five and verse eight. Um, I love, it says, when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Um, so why I think that verse is vital is that we don't always know what's going to reach someone's heart, mm -hmm. but Jesus does. And I've, I know that from my own experience, like there could be something going on with me that only he knows about. And when I see him answer that call, I instantly know it's him talking to me. And, and that's the way it is, too, when we're when we're lost, like when we're lost, God knows exactly what the secret language of our soul is and he knows how to approach us. So I think, um, yeah, I just I really love that verse because mm -hmm. I feel like, you know, Peter's response is not entirely rational. Like he immediately calls out his own sinfulness and has a moment of repentance because they pulled a bunch of fish into the boat. Mm -hmm. Um and yet we are, we're the same way. Like w there will be something that we respond to. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, yeah. And also a lot of this, though, like I said before, there was there's there's no logical reason to just throw the net on the other side. I mean, okay, sure. There might be a school of fish that you could see over there. and Hey, toss it over there instead. But when you've been fishing all night long, you're in these waters, you know, these waters and and you're just not catching anything and you just decided to give it up for the day. And then your friend comes along and says, try it on this side. And then you pull in so much, if I'm not mistaken, there was two boats, wasn't there? They're, they're, they're pulling in so much fish that they're about ready to, to uh, capsize the boats. And so when you, see, when you see Peter's acceptance, there's a lot of things that have been going on. He's known of Jesus for several years. His brother has, has introduced him as the Messiah. Uh, and, and now this miracle happens right in front of your eyes. Um, it's, a, it's been a bit of a gradual process and buildup for Peter when he when he does proclaim his own sinfulness or or declare his own sinfulness and then is willing to drop everything because then Jesus says follow me and I'll make you fishers of men it's a huge commitment to just drop everything i mean they have they've just made a big catch they could make some money off of this thing but it seems like they just let it go i suppose you know maybe they had the partners or whatever but but just walking away it's been i think to me to me it feels important to recognize that this wasn't just a sudden spur of the moment decision on peter's part where jesus was able to work with him over time to get him to a point to then to to accept the miracle and recognize who he was so this isn't very important, but I, I never get the feeling that they walked away from the catch. I, I think, you know, they had employees, they had their dad, they, they have people. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, they become Christ followers at this moment, but I feel like it wasn't that they just walked away and maybe left the fish to drown in the net or something like oh. that. Yeah, no, yeah. no, yeah, yeah, I think, yeah, they were partners, seems like they were partners with their dad, like you say, probably had employees, yeah. so yeah, it's not like just fish were left to rot, but, but right, right. Peter and Andrew, j- just, it seems like they left it, because it does say, yeah, they forsook it, they forsook all and followed him, they just, that was no longer their focus anymore, wasn't fishing, it was Jesus, right, yeah, that's how yeah. I took it, yeah, and so, you know, when you think back to when yeah. and- yes. Andrew was saying, we found the Messiah, and he's telling Peter this. This tell that told me that they have been studying about this. They have been looking for the Messiah. They have been their eyes are open. They're aware of. They seem to be somewhat aware of what to be expecting from Messiah. And then as Jesus starts to reveal Himself to them, they come to a point of realizing this is Him. This is the Messiah. Even if they don't totally understand who He is and what His what He's doing. It has been a building of a relationship for them to be able to, at this point, feel comfortable. Comfortable? Maybe that's not, I don't know how comfortable you'd be doing that, but but feeling compelled enough to walk away from everything you knew business-wise, everything that had kept you comfortable um, and, and take this different, take this different path. Also, James and John are called at this point, too. And they, uh, I, you know, and I wonder, I wonder how well these guys, these four all knew each other. Peter, Andrew, James, and John. 
because it would seem like they're all in basically the same area. Don't really get an indication that they were co-workers, so to speak, or partners, but I bet they knew each other. Competitors? Like, maybe competitors, yeah. You know, competitors, but maybe, you know, a friendly competition where they were aware of each other. Oh, yeah, you uh, guys are known for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Rival business partners. Well, you know, I mean, as an electrician, I go into the wholesale house and we see each other all the time and talk to each other. And we don't necessarily worry that one guy got a job that the other didn't because we all have our own, you know, little niches. But, um, you no, know, you know, there's, there's familiarity. But, um, but we don't we don't get a whole lot about how James and John are called other than it seems like it's probably somewhat similar than the seems more like Jesus is able to just call them where instead of uh, performing a miracle but i would i would suspect that there's some familiarity going on with these four men to where when they all get called it's um then i don't know maybe there's a little comfort in that with them of knowing that the others the others are there too well the next story that we really get Jesus is traveling through Galilee and it says that he's teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all kinds of sickness and disease. And his fame is spreading, and sick people are brought from all over the place. And so all these, these different diseases, demon possessions, um, epileptics, paralytics are specifically uh, pointed out. As he's going around, he's not simply teaching. He's performing, he's performing these miraculous healings that that people are seeing and i wonder if some of this was happening even before he had to leave nazareth because it seems like they wanted him to do some of this stuff and it seems also when we talk about nicodemus it seems like he also was aware of some of the things happening and so i have a feeling jesus was doing some of this healing stuff before he really got going uh that's just my perception so a couple of things jump out at me. One is, um, I think we're not used to seeing, you know, people who are very ill, lying beside the street, um, hanging out on street corners, um, in, in, you know, in areas of the public square, so to speak. It's just not a thing here. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've been to one of those places. I, and we were in Pashipanti in okay. Nepal. Well, with Tracy, yes. Um And I remember thinking, distinctly thinking, I wish Jesus was right here because there were people everywhere laying on mats, um, under rugs, lying beside the river so they'd be close to the river when they died so people could pitch their body in. Um, And it was it was astounding. Like, that's how they get rid of their dead. They throw them in the river. Um, And it just to me, it was like being beside the pool of Bethesda or one of those places where people are longing for healing and they're bringing their family members, but nothing ever happens. And they're just sitting there. Mm. Uh, it was pretty uh, profound and different from our experience here. Um, and, and then the other thing that kind of jumps out at me is it says that he also was healing those who were possessed by devils. And so again, in our experience, we always chalk everything up to mental illness in our modern era. And very, very often there, there is mental illness and demon possession is outside of my realm of experience. And yet over and over again, Jesus talks to demons that he has cast out. Um, they talk to him and somehow in the new Testament, we get a clear picture that it's a real thing. And I think we have to take that 
into account. You know, as soon as, so in Matthew 4 is where he stands up and reads and then, you know, and says, from that time on, Jesus began to preach, right? So he calls his first disciples. And then in Matthew 4, 23, it says, Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon possessed, those having seizures and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from, listen to this region, large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, right? That's a network of 10 cities. Mm. Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. A lot of people. <laughs> when it says great multitudes, they're not kidding. You know, what I saw there, what uh, Karen was reading too, but no Nazareth. Yeah. You know, and it goes back to exactly what she was saying in the beginning, too. And what we read is that when Elijah was there, people didn't go see him either. That lived right there. So it's it's getting over, you know, where you're from kind of thing. But along the lines of what Amy was saying, too, when we were in Nepal, it was that. We're, we're not so accustomed to that, to see people sick on the side of the streets or sides of a river. We're not used to that. But I would say that at this point, post-pandemic, what we're seeing is a lot, and I don't know if Karen sees it um, there and um, where she's at, is that, you know, the mental illness part has made a lot of that. We do see a lot of people on the side of the, the roads now. There are people that are asking for help on the side of the streets. And and I'm wondering, too, if that's just, once again, one of those signs of the times, too, that, you know, now that is becoming a norm as well. Yeah, well, around here, we are seeing a whole lot of homeless. And it is the kind of thing that makes me wonder what has driven you to be here. I mean, I know the economy is a piece of it. But it, it just seems to me there's got to be more than just – there's got to be something where you feel comfortable. I don't know. Comfortable is not the right word. I don't know. I, I can't explain it. I just – I know I see it and I go, that is that is different interesting than what we're used to. Very different than what we're used to because, I mean, there is a lot of homeless people camping next to rivers and, yep. you know, places where it's like so, I'm guessing they can clean up. You know, and we had a great conversation in our men's group, you know, a few weeks ago about that. It's like, OK, where does, you know, maybe mental illness fall in there? And I'm not saying by any means that everybody that's out there suffers from mental illness. Right. Um, but, you know, what's or, or uses drugs, you know? Yes. Yes. Yeah. And it's like, OK, so, you know, what do we you know, we looked at demon possession in our in our men's group. And, you know, could it have been, you know, mental illness that. In the days that they were saying that they were, you know, possessed by demons and that kind of stuff that Jesus was casting out, or was he helping people with mental illness? Which we had a great conversation in our men's group. But, you know, like Karen, is that possible? Yeah. Yes. Go ahead, Karen. So I, I was doing some research about mental illness. I mean, I know I work in the industry, but I was doing some statistical research for a thing I had to write up here, like maybe two weeks ago. Mm -hmm. And so in in Kentucky, where I live, there is a substance abuse problem. Sure. Mm -hmm. um, that can be a self-driving motivation. I actually have people on my client list who started doing drugs as soon as they were old enough to know what they were and take it from someone else's hand. 
they they are unaware they they are unaware that there's a whole spectrum of society that lives without street drugs. Wow. Like somewhere they're aware of it in theory, but that has not been part of their life. Yeah. And their life has not been kind. And so why wouldn't you escape it for uh, an hour and a half or 45 minutes if you could with a good high, right? And mm. the price that you pay for the come down. And then and then th- there's other things that I'm finding. So if people have a a brain imbalance that requires what in street language you would call a stimulant, right? So like a meth type of a thing. If you have a brain imbalance that requires stimulant to balance, you are predisposed to seeking out those kinds of drugs. It starts with a brain imbalance. It ends with a habit that then continues to dump imbalance into your already imbalanced system. But while it's in your body, you feel sane. And there again, I have clients who tell me that. When I'm high is the only time I feel sane. And I'm like, really? Because I've seen you high. You should see how you act. And they're not. Hmm. They're like, I'm not talking about how I act. I'm not talking for one second about how I look from the outside. I'm talking about how I feel. Do you have any re- any idea what a relief it is to feel sane? Right? Mm. So what are you born with? What do you create through early substance use? You know, what do you create through continued substance use that drains you of the ability to produce or receive a certain neurotransmitter, whatever? You know, there's all these different ways of looking at it. Where where does demon possession get in there? I don't know. The lines are very blurry. The lines are very blurry. I have one client who's a very spiritual lady. She is schizophrenic. She does not hear things, but she sees things. She continually sees this whole other realm occurring through and on top of the realm that you and I see. Can I legitimately, knowing that demon possession exists, am I really going to argue with her about the truth of what her eyes are telling her? You know, so through her own, and she's an interesting case because she's a very spiritual lady. And through her own understanding of God, good and evil, she has become willing. She said, I can take medication that makes what I see go away, but it also flattens me emotionally. She goes, I've chosen to accept that I'm catching glimpses of a spiritual realm that I shouldn't be catching glimpses of in this time and place and have my full emotional capacity. She goes, that's what I've chosen to do. I choose not to medicate myself and to simply understand that I am catching glimpses of the demonic. Mm. That is, that is, those are her words. Like she has actually said that to me and she's comfortable with that. But as far as like, you know, how does mental health fit into it? The only thing the mental health industry does is they look at the outplay. They look at the symptoms and they and they say, you know, and then we've got the diagnostic manual. Right. And it's like, well, based on these, this ongoing, reliably consistent set of symptoms, you fit into this diagnosis. And now with this diagnosis, now we say. How do we go about treating it? Is it a, is it a long-term enzyme 
problem? Is it a PTSD problem? Is it a chemical imbalance? Is it a con is it an ongoing situational training that has has conditioned you to this frame of mind? And if so, how do we break it, right? So there's no assumption that psychiatry, which is the prescription of medicine, you know, to balance it out, needs to be permanent. But sometimes it can help interrupt a cycle of behavior or emotional patterns, and it gives you a chance to reassess. Anyway, to get back to what I was trying to say, here in Kentucky, the there it's all it's a horrible percentage. It's almost five percent are diagnosed with a severe mental illness. Yeah. So our I mean, we do have similar situations then, but ours just looks a little different. Well, but with that comes a willingness to live on the street. Okay, so I was talking yeah. to a new potential client the other day, and he says, he says, um, I didn't want to take my medication. My mom applied for guardianship, and she's making me take my medication. They put me in the hospital, and they stuck it in my arm with a needle. He goes, my plan was to stop taking my medication and go be homeless. Wow. He was fine with that. He was fine with that because the, the feeling of personal freedom – of making his own choices was worth not having a system leaning over him all the time, medicating him. Hmm. So it's, it's a tough position to be in. Where's the line between possession and mental illness? I have no idea. We're not going to know until heaven. Yeah. Interesting. Oh, yeah. I, I affirm that probably the vast majority of mental illness is biochemical. Um, and also, you know, exacerbated by that, of course, is drug use, which is, you know, more than half at this point, at least in Colorado. And, and so that only makes the problem compounded. But I, I guess I just want to point out the fact that the scripture is very clear about the fact that, you know, like when we're talking about the, the, what are they called? The demon possessed men in the tombs, you know, the Gennesarenes, they're, they speak to to Christ. They recognize who he is and he speaks back to them. And so there is an interplay with some sort of other being. And I think in our modern world, we tend to chalk up everything to mental illness. We tend to think that everything is biochemical. And we do know a lot about biochemistry, but I guarantee you we know less than Jesus did. And <laughs> and I just feel like, you know, that's a that's a thing we have to be aware of as we're reading the scripture is that somehow Christ took seriously this, um, this situation. And then just briefly, I've only known one person that I, that I really thought uh, was, and she just uh, demon possessed. And um, she described to me uh, a, a severe loneliness in her childhood that left her open to that um, because she'd been abandoned by both father and mother. And this, thing came to her and spoke to her and took over her life. Um, and, uh, it was terrifying to listen to her, but she, her functionality is, um, dependent on this other being. So it was very strange. Mm. Mm. Yeah. No. Yeah. That, yeah. Yeah. That, I think that's a good point you make there because I have heard people say that, well, what we is, what we see as imbalances today, Maybe that's what they were seeing as possession in the past, um, but it is specifically pointed out that there is this interaction between between them uh, where you can see that demons are recognizing Jesus and vice versa, and you can't discount that. 
So well, and- I think one more important point is right at the end of the story of that, Jesus casts them into the swine and the swine fly over the edge of the cliff. And yeah. if it were simply mental illness, they would have no capability in the natural world. They would have nothing visible outside of the individual who was biochemically injured. Mm-hmm. Um, and instead, we see this profound proof that something real happened uh, to those creatures. Yeah. So two things real quick. Number one, I think our world today is much more chemically complex and corrupted than in Jesus era when food was really basic and it was right from the earth. They were not spraying their crops, right? They were not modifying their seeds. They were not doing this weird stuff. They were not treating the local drinking water with these harsh chemicals, which you then drink and the and the positive effects are judged as worth the risks, right? Like, so there was a, I think our, our modern world is much more chemically complex and it has not been kind to the humans living in it. All right. That's one way of looking at it. One of my clients said something to me the other day. And th- to me, this is the crux of it. This is the crux of salvation for every single one of us. Now she was speaking from the point of view of childhood sexual abuse and lifelong mental illness. And where did those two intersect? There again, that's a huge question because the percentage of people who are severely mentally ill who have a history of trauma is very, very high. So like, how are those connected, right? That's a whole different rabbit hole. But here's, here's what she said, and I think this applies to every single one of us. She said, who was I supposed to be? I never even had a chance. Who was I supposed to be? She goes, I don't hate myself. Don't get me wrong. I don't hate myself. But I never even had a chance to be a whole human. Hmm. Right? And she was speaking of mental illness and her uncle's and cousin's interference with her sexually. We can have that exact same conversation if we look back, you know, okay, yeah, we're all getting to be the old geezers in the crowd. Let's just throw that out there. But like, (laughs) we can all have that same conversation looking back over the course of our lives. Who are we supposed to be? If this and that and the other hadn't happened, who, who should we have been? What would we be like if we were whole? If we even had a fair shot and instead we're born with the fallen nature with flawed bodies, with flawed minds, into a battlefield, and we're the walking wounded, and none of us have had a fair chance. Yeah. This is an interesting world we live in where it attacks us early, and I mean, some of us get hit harder than others, but it attacks us early, starts breaking us down as er- as quickly as it can to the point where where some of us then we don't know how to react. We don't know how to function in a normal society and, and uh, don't even and know what normal is. If normal comes normal along is. and looks at us, we're like, oh, that's weird. I'm going back mm-hmm. to what I know. Yeah. 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 I think that's a fantastic point, Karen, because. Um, I don't know if any of you guys have read The Problem of Pain by C.S. Lewis, but he addresses that. And he says, you know, we're all so afraid of losing ourselves. And we're, we're terrified that if we give ourselves to Christ, we will not be ourselves. And he says yeah. it is only in Christ that we will ever discover who we were really meant to be. And um, 
that man, that is so important to me, that thought, because I remember that sensation. I remember thinking, boy, I don't want to be somebody else. Um, but it is only in Christ that we really are who we were intended to be. Mm-hmm. Well, and as, as Jesus is traveling around, these are the things he's addressing is these people who have been disenfranchised by any number of things that and it seems like probably these things have been it's not their fault i mean they're sick they are they are possessed they are dealing with with medical conditions that are outside of their abilities to 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 fix to comprehend and you you can kind of glean through through the writings in the Bible that these people were seen as lesser, um, especially as we get, we'll get down to the, you know, we talk about the leper, but uh, you know, they're, there's, they're set aside to the point where they're almost forgotten. And, and Jesus is helping these people. And this is waking something up in the crowds that is making them want to follow him. And so as we move on in, in the narrative then, and Jesus is teaching in, uh, he's teaching in the synagogue in, in Capernaum, and we're told that his, the people are astonished at his teaching because he is preaching with an authority. They say it says, not like the scribes, which we've heard before about him when he was 12 years old and got left behind in Jerusalem and people were sitting around listening to him talk. And Jesus is speaking in a way that these people have not heard before. He's making I can I can imagine he is applying scripture in a way that they haven't quite considered. I I would imagine that they have grown up very legalistic in their thinking of I have to do the right things in order to in order to gain God's favor and 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 be in his good graces. And Jesus is teaching them things that they haven't heard before in a way that they haven't heard before. And they're and they're responding. You know, I think too, it's it's a manner in which he did it. It's when you know what you're talking about, you speak yeah. with authority. Yeah. And I think that's exactly what they were not used to. It's because I think in their way they were, you know, when we've said this, they had the Ten Commandments, but then they also had another set of about six hundred rules that they couldn't do, which kept growing. And it's like I think when when Jesus was there, he spoke with authority and no, this is the way it is. And let me show you from the past, knowing all this and having the authority they were not used to. So, I mean, here on earth, we don't we don't have that much authority. We're lucky if we can manage authority over ourselves. But probably the closest we get to that is when we were raising our kids and they were really little. Right. And they're flailing around and they're doing dumb things and they're worried about things that don't matter and they're getting excited about things that don't matter. And our perspective is their authority because our perspective is so much perspective is so much larger than theirs. And we can walk into the room and say, knock it off. Everybody knock it off. This is what we're going to do. And we are the absolute voice of authority and they will drop what they're doing and practically stand at attention if you speak firmly. Right. Mm hmm. That's the way Jesus was, is with the natural world. He sees it so much clearer than we do. And we're down here flailing around in the mud like toddlers. And he can walk in and shout at the storm and say, be still. And it will be still, right? And, you know, our realm of influence, our realm of authority is so tiny compared to his. But remember this, remember the story where the, <clears throat> the, um, 
is it the Ro- the Roman leader comes to him and says, you know, my 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 servant is ill, yeah. and he says, um, and and he says, all you have to do is speak from here and you can heal him. I myself am a man of authority and I know what it's like to be able to order things around. I'd and Jesus' that. response is, man, I haven't seen faith like this even in the house of Israel. <laughs> Right. But yeah. that's that's what that is. That's what faith is. It's recognition of authority. And when mm-hmm. when that's it's exactly what it is. we just get out of its way and you have no idea what I wouldn't be able what I wouldn't give to be able to to be able to look at my clients lives because I can see their pattern. I'm not in them. I can see them and just be able to say, get out of my way. We're going to make some changes. You you think you're in control. You're actually messing it up get out of my way, we're going to make some changes and have them actually respond to that. That's not my job, though, right? Yeah. I like your definition of faith there. It's something, I hadn't really considered it that way, but but as I hear it, 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 it sounds exactly right. The recognition of authority, recognizing that God has the abilities and has the capabilities and has the right to do the things that he does. And, right. Not and, my realm, your realm. I'll get out of your way and just do what you say without mm-hmm, question. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that that's that's great. And so and then that's what Jesus is demonstrating here in his teaching. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and people are able to believe it because they can see that he he knows he knows what this is all about. And and uh, they're they're fascinated by him. <laughs> Tracy, do you suppose there was a lot of amens when he was preaching or do you suppose it was a lot of people standing, sitting and, and looking quietly and then Jesus going, I wish I had a church. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> See, this is humorous. Well, Ed A.B., you're part of this too, but our our pastor has been presenting things to us that we should recognize as Christians, and and, and but some of it feels so new to us, and we're like, well, I sort of intellectually understood that, but I didn't get it. And so we he says something, and the congregation is just kind of staring at him with our mouths open, and he's just he's he's thinking is expecting um, a, a reaction that he's not getting from us, and it's because we're just going, ah, uh. <laughs> and he'll go, I wish I had a church, and we're just going, we don't know how to respond yet. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I, I could I wish I knew exactly everything you were saying at this point. Yeah, I have to go home and and do some study. I gotta I gotta think about this now. Yeah. So I can sort of imagine that happening I, as Jesus is speaking to these people in these synagogues. And I, uh, you know, I don't, I don't know how much interaction there was between whoever was speaking and, and the people in the crowd. I mean, if it's a, if it's a teaching moment, are they asking questions? Are they, are they offering, uh, are they offering things like we do here in a round table discussion type of thing? But I could just I could just sort of imagine that as Jesus is speaking, they're just their mouths are open and and they're fascinated by what he's saying. But this is when when we get one of these unclean spirits speaking out of somebody, uh, let us alone. I think he said, um, did you come here to to destroy me or destroy us? I think that was this story. I didn't write that down in my notes, but I know who you are, the Holy One of God. So this recognition of Jesus's authority as the god of heaven uh as the creator as being this holy one as we know him as the christ yet jesus doesn't want him doesn't want this being to speak in this way about him and that is 
that is interesting to me. And I can only imagine it's because you don't want that source giving you credit. I mean, does that make sense to you guys? Is that does that seem why Jesus would tell him, no, I don't want you saying this stuff? It makes sense to me. The other thing that I really like in that story is just how Jesus turns to it and says, uh, hold that peace. Come yeah. on. Mm-hmm. Like he doesn't mince words at all. This is not a conversation. This is a command. And especially in the things that are, you know, causing trouble in our own families, in our own lives, etc. We can rely, as Karen was saying, simply on the authority of Christ. There's nothing here to argue with. Be be done with this man. Leave. And it's and it's over. And I love that. It's so mm-hmm. powerful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, you know, the part of that that also is interesting to me is that the people say, what new doctrine is this? As Jesus is speaking to this, this demon and it immediately leaves. And have they not have they not seen something like this before? Did they just accept it if someone was demon possessed that that was just the way it was going to be? Uh, or is it? The ease with which Jesus got the demon out, I wonder. Um, it's just interesting to me that there, of course, I mean, if I saw it, I've never seen an exorcism happen. I would be astonished and amazed to see it some, something like that happen. So, so maybe just seeing it was enough for them to, to be amazed by it. But just the idea that they thought of it as something new is interesting to me. So I wonder if it's because there tends like there have been people who have done exorcisms and there were even in this time frame, uh, you know, people who claim to have power over evil spirits. And so but it's always done with such um, ceremony, like let's, you know, do this incantation and that incantation and and let's, you know, so it's almost like a magical thing to try Mm. to get rid of um, this problem. Mm -hmm. And yet Jesus's authority is complete and so there's no um, messing around with any sort of, you know, he doesn't mix up a potion. He mm-hmm. doesn't do anything that we would recognize as causing it to happen. It is simply hit the authority of his word that causes it to happen. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I suppose we could see that today even, and, you know, as people I've heard of people who have had issues with spirits in their home or dealing with things and you know they want the pastor to come over and there's going to be prayer and there's going to be laying on of hands and and uh, mm-hmm. and sort they're, exactly. they're they're looking for a ritual to take place exactly i know mm-hmm. where jesus is just like no get out and and they go so yep. mm-hmm. so that must be why they thought what what new doctrine is this yeah yes just the simple ease with which he did it yeah that makes that makes sense. Well, we get a nice little story about um, Peter's mother-in-law being healed. So they, they they leave the synagogue and they go to Peter's house, which I just happened to see a, a map this morning that was showing where the traditional belief of where Peter's house was. It was only like a block away from from the synagogue, so it's relatively close. I guess they're going for lunch afterwards. I don't know, but um, Peter's mother-in-law is is uh, sick. She's got a fever. And Jesus takes her hand, lifts her up, and her fever leaves her. It's a very short little story. And I think I I guess what I like about it, though, is even though it's short and the, the writers, um, all, all, all three of the synoptic gospel writers tell about it, but it's a very, it's just a little snippet. But it seems to just be a nice little human interaction that you know, Jesus is even 
concerned with this woman's fever. She just doesn't feel good that day. You know, I don't know how serious it was. I, I would imagine a fever back then when you didn't have ibuprofen to knock it out probably could be relatively fairly serious. But at the very least, she just didn't feel that good that day. And Jesus took care of her. He just told the fever to leave. And then mm-hmm. she got up and served them. So don't think there wasn't a snarky, liberated, modern woman in me who was like, really? Peter wanted sandwiches and his mom couldn't cook. And so. <laughs> Why does that not surprise me? <laughs> okay, I'm, I'm done now. That was, that's the end of my. <laughs> I always know I'm going to get some little gem out of Karen and. Well, you know, like Peter okay, wanted she, sandwiches. she immediately arose and began to serve them. Really, yeah. Peter, you couldn't just go make her lunch. Like maybe she needed lunch. Like go make her, go, go make, go make her some chicken soup and take it to her. She's <laughs> ill. Yeah, that's not the way no. it works, Karen. No, that's the way it worked. <laughs> yeah, I'm done now. Yeah, no, but I do, I just, I do love that. I love the fact that even this little thing Jesus takes care of, what, what seems relatively simple. But it was still enough that it inspired all of these writers to tell the story about it. Because it's only it's only one or two verses, maybe three verses in each one of those gospels, but they all they all include it. So clearly it all touched them, probably similar similarly to me, of just a very simple act and and uh and then uh the mother in law's um I, I take it as gratitude. I don't know. Because she could have, I don't know, said, you know what, I'm just going to sit here and recoup for a while. But I guess she didn't need to. I guess that's part of the point, too, is that she just got up and was able to go do what she was going to do. There's there's more there's more talk about people being brought to Jesus, specifically after sunset on Sabbath. And that's I, this, I think, is going to this is different from what we're something we're going to see later, but specifically people are brought to Jesus after the Sabbath, after the sun has set to be healed. And they're brought from all over the place. And again, Matthew points this out as a fulfillment of prophecy from Isaiah 53. Again, Luke talks about Jesus coming out and talking about Jesus as the Christ, as the son of God. He says he rebuked, rebuking them did not, a lot of them to speak for they knew that he was the Christ. Maybe he didn't. I, again, I, I wonder, it, it takes a little thought to wonder why he didn't want them to talk other than either, either he didn't want to tip his hat towards that just yet, or he didn't like the source being the authority. Maybe authority is the wrong word to put here, but just didn't like that source being the one advertising what was happening. There's more talk about preaching in Galilee. One thing that sticks out to me here is this is in uh, oh Lord, it's Mark. He talks about how Jesus would rise early in the morning to pray. Uh, and I think we see this more than once where Jesus would get up early. It would seem like before the sun was up, it's still dark outside. The world is quiet and he would get up and this would be his time for prayer. This would be his time, um, I guess, for preparing for the day. Um and if we're going to see Jesus as an example for us, I think that probably is a good example for us. Get up early when the world is quiet and there's not a bunch of stuff bombarding us yet. Um, it's probably, to me, it's a good time for study. It's a good time for prayer uh, because 
there's just not all those distractions. I haven't had the whole day coming down on me. And then at the end of the day, I'm thinking, you know, processing what I've already gone through at this point, then I can be thinking about how things are going to progress. And this is, this was Jesus's practice to get up early and pray. But Jesus comes and says, or I'm sorry, Simon comes and says, everyone is looking for you. And Jesus interestingly says, well, let's move on to the other towns then. um, Because that's why I came. And the, the crowd was trying to keep him from leaving. They, I guess they wanted him for themselves. And uh, he was recognizing that he needed to travel. He needed to get around. He needed for his message to get to other people. And he couldn't just let this one area monopolize him. And the last little bit we'll talk about today is uh, the cleansing of a leper. Now, we've heard lots of talk about cleansings uh, and healings, but all three of those gospel writers, again, they talk specifically about this one leper. And this leper comes to him and says, if you are willing, you can make me clean. That's an interesting way for him to to say that. If you're willing, you can make me clean. I suppose it's an important pointing out and maybe as we pray for things and we ask, remembering that whatever we ask for needs to be within God's will. And so as we're praying, we're trying to find God's will. And so that's how this leper comes to him. And Jesus's response is, I am willing, be cleansed. And then that leprosy is gone. Uh, what, do you, what, what do you think of that interaction of, of if you're willing and I am willing? Well, honestly, that's how I, that's how my prayers go. He's capable of everything, mm-hmm. but he doesn't intervene. You know, he doesn't always intervene here. Yeah. So if I'm asking for something specific, it's always it's always got two caveats. Is this actually good for me? Right? Like, is it within your will? Mm-hmm. Can I have it? And are you willing? Because I know for a fact he's not willing to do everything. He does not intervene in everything here on earth. And I think that's kind of how the 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 question was posed. It was giving the the uh, the respect, the admiration, um, and just letting. I think he was letting Jesus know that I know you can do this, but are you willing to do it for me? Mm-hmm. You know, and I think that's a that's the biggest touching statement because you know he has the power, and you see yourself as that tiny, you know, the person swimming in the ocean. That that just tiny, tiny speck in a vast universe. And he's saying, for me, your humble servant, are you willing to do this for me? Because I know you can. Yeah, so it is interesting. Understanding, yes, he has the faith. He understands that Jesus yep. can Jesus can do this. And I think maybe sometimes we we forget that faith for ourselves and you know, uh can God do this for us? And we need to remember that, yes, he can do it. Uh, and then we are trying to find his will. Is it his will? And are we, you know, if, if he says no, are we willing to accept it? Because, you know, there's a uh, the old Garth Brooks song, uh, Unanswered Prayers, and drives specifically my wife nuts because she says, no, all prayers are answered. Right. Just just because you got, just because you didn't get what you wanted doesn't mean your prayer wasn't answered. It just means the answer was no. 
you know, it wasn't, it wasn't good for you. And so even, you know, a physical ailment like this, you know, if Jesus had seen that somehow this man having leprosy was in the long run good for him, he wouldn't have healed him. That's a weird concept for us to consider and, and you know, something for us to wrap our brains around, you know, as, as we see loved ones and friends suffering from illnesses that they don't seem to be getting healed from is, well, you know, I mean, we can ask why, but are we willing to accept or uh, if the if that answer is no, but in this case that wasn't the the answer. He was he was um, granted it. I don't know if granted is the right way, but Jesus was willing for it. And then and then here's the other part of this. He tells him not to tell anybody. And I again I wonder why, but I suppose it's just maybe just so that he wouldn't get mobbed because his purpose was not simply to make people feel better his purpose was to spread a message and an ideal and when people get those little nuggets of things they just they just want more of that and they don't necessarily care about about the that that message which was you know we'll see some of this when we see jesus feeding the four and the five thousand and and how people just came back wanting more of that and Jesus would turn them down because all they wanted was fish sandwiches, you know. But he, you know, at this point now, we're be- because this man, he goes ahead and does tell everybody, we find then that Jesus has to start spending his time outside of the cities more. Because if he's in the city, he's just getting mobbed. And so his, his ministry has to take place in, in other areas and in different ways so that he doesn't get mobbed by people just wanting favors, I suppose. So that is kind of the beginnings of Jesus's ministries. Any uh, little, any other nuggets or last thoughts on any of that? I have no thoughts. No, oh, you have thoughts. You're just not giving them to us. <laughs> you have thoughts. We've heard them today. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All righty. Well, I guess that will be our time for this week. Next week, we will be focusing on John chapter four. Remember, you can reach out to us at attepodcast at theadventure.org. Remember, you can look us up on Facebook. Remember that you can subscribe to the podcast that we reach you in your feed each and every week. And please share the podcast with your friends and family. And we look forward to talking to you again next week. Thanks for listening.